Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Girls Gone Canon, John 2 and John 3 in a Game of Thrones. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as Lies and Arbor or at my blog at liesandarborgold.com. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl from the Maester Monthly Podcast or the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric on Twitter. Who knows? Anything could happen. Anything could, it's anyone's game. <laughs> of Thrones. Oh my god. Guys, we are on our second John episode. I'm really excited that we uh, got through that first one. Everybody seemed to have some positive reactions, so thanks so much to those of you who uh, reached out to us. We're glad you're enjoying it, because I think we... I don't know, we've just been doing Sansa and Theon for a while, so it's a new person to have a new take on. It is, and this is just too... By the time we get to whatever POV after this, we're going to be like, man, we've been on John for a long time. Yeah. Holy crap. That's going to be interesting. I, uh, we got a lot, a long road. Oh, we do. A long road. But we are interspersing a lot of those John chapters, of course, with the season eight Game of Thrones episode commentary. Yes. We're really excited about doing those. The next episode you hear after this episode, John 2 and John 3, will actually be season eight, episode one. Yes. We'll be talking about Game of Thrones. I don't know. I don't think we've like named what we're calling it. Should we call this The Girls Watch Thrones? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. I really like, and obviously we're not taking this. I just want to shout out, you know, Game of Owns's Watch the Throne. I like that that reference to the Jay-Z Kanye collab album. Yes. Yes. I love that. Did you hear there's a rumor that there's like a rap project, hip hop R&B project for Game of Thrones happening? Uh, I heard a rumor online that there's already been two the roots and no that that there's another happening for oh, this season. Another like, one. The roots. Uh, the weekend. A bunch of people oh. collaborating on it. No, I haven't heard yeah, about we'll that. We'll have to do some digging. Yeah, I heard a rumor about it. Maybe it was on Reddit, but I saw it and that really intrigued me. Really intrigued me. That's some uh big marketing. It is. I mean, they yeah they had done this like in mixtapes on it in the past, but. They're always enjoyable. It'd be nice if they did another one. On top of our Game of Thrones episodes, if you've been following along the last few episodes and weeks, we are doing a Patreon stretch goal. We're getting very close to that goal. We want to do a live stream for patrons. Uh, Kind of a VIP live stream. If you get the link, you get the link. You know what I mean? Uh, If you get past the bouncer at the door, who are we to know? Who are we to know? So make friends to your friends, I guess. But for $1 and up, you will have access to this live stream, a link to this live stream. And it looks like we're going to be doing that at the end of April. So get us to our goals so we don't look like jerks. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you can check that out at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We are excited to hopefully do that. (laughs) We would like to do that. Yeah. If not, we're just going to Skype each other. Yeah, we have ideas. And not record Exactly. We're just going to talk as we do. Anyway, every day we kind of yes. do talk every day. We're friends. Yeah, we do. We check in. We check yeah. in. Uh, this podcast, you know, to build a family, a podcast, a home. <laughs> the podcast <laughs> stays to whatever. The podcast survives. We really couldn't do these episodes without you guys. Obviously, you guys are what makes these episodes from fun for us. And we have tons of emails and tweets and just different things we get in every week from friends of the podcast listeners we had a great tweet from ink tentacles who Mm. has totally figured us out uh we're always getting asked what our method is for these povs and 
our method really isn't anything particular. It's not like a only characters that have this color eye or, you know, anything weird like that. It's really just how their thematics add up if they're related in thematics. And Ink Tentacles on Twitter figured it out. They said, I love how these POVs tie up into each other. First, we have Sansa's perspective as a prisoner and hostage, followed by Theon's hostage situation and the feeling of being an outsider in Winterfell, which ties perfectly together with Jon. Yes. Obviously, these aren't the only sort of ways that we have structured our POV order. And I'm very excited, you know, whenever we get to the next one to reveal to reveal that one, because I think we personally think, of course, because we fucking made it, that all of it makes sense. <laughs> but <laughs> there is a method to our madness. There really is. Uh, oh, you want to do another one that I could do last? Sure. And then we have this other tweet from Fatma, a.k.a. Lulu801, who says, Book John is my favorite character, and you have really done this very well. Looking forward to what's coming. Regarding John's bastardy, I always thought what annoyed him more than inheritance is the fact that people assume that he is evil by nature and he wanted to prove them wrong. It's probably something we're going to talk about a lot in this episode with that entitlement that he kind of has. I mean, he grew up as Ned Stark's son. Uh, whether or not you're a bastard, you're still the son of a nobleman and you still lived kind of a privileged life. So it's a little different. It's not inheritance that he wants. He just wants to prove to the world that he's just another guy. Yeah. And I think when we are talking about inheritance, we're especially talking about that scene that comes a lot later in Storm between Stannis and John, and how John reflects on thinking once that he would have Winterfell and it's less that he wanted that inheritance and you know like because that that desire for inheritance is what leads some people to think that bastards are evil by nature or whatever and like obviously John isn't we see all that and it's more it's less John wanting an inheritance and more of him wanting some sort of I think home, home <laughs> equality like so, not being treated like he desires that inheritance and wanting, I don't know, to just feel like he belongs with the rest of his family. Yeah. Like you said, home. And that's where you get that kind of really similar thematic arc as Daenerys, right? Yes. Uh, that How she, you know, craves that red door. She remembers, you know, the big warm arms of someone and just the red door, lemon trees. She remembers it all and she just wants that feeling of safety, security, and home. And John especially... I mean, he's scared. He's going off to do something that maybe he shouldn't have chosen to do. Uh, but he, there was no place for him where he was. He didn't really have a home. He's kind of like that little, uh, is it a duck or what is it that walks around saying, are you my mother? It, it, it is a little duckling. I like saying, I like there thinking about that book, though, in the context of Beric Dondarrion and Thoros of Mir. Yeah. <laughs> but, of course, John's arc may very much end up following something a little similar to Beric Dondarrion. So it would be apt for John to go around being like, are you my mother? And then Kate, one of our friends on Twitter, at DukesF04, said that she was cracking up at work yesterday, was thinking how emo Jon Snow calling Marcella vapid was another nod to Rhaegar. I bet that's what he thought of Cersei. I thought that was just a really fun call out and idea that Rhaegar might have thought that of Cersei. I, I think that's great. Again, we do not think Marcella's vapid, but I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if Rhaegar thought that of Cersei. She's not vapid. There's a lot in there, but it's it's all real loud and weird. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 weird. John's outsiderness. It's a little much. I think maybe George was a little too on the nose there. I don't know. It's hard to think of John being so like, uh, but it is a great parallel to that idea of Rhaegar probably being like, uh, Cersei's the worst. Maybe too on the nose. Like the writing in A Game of Thrones, it's it's really interesting jumping from dance chapters back to A Game of Thrones. And of course, we're going to see that progression of George's writing because obviously as people write more and they do things for years, they become better at it. And you see that between game and dance. So it'll be interesting also following these chapters throughout all five of those books. And I think, yeah, some some things are not as deftly done as he would be able to do them now. For sure. And then finally, we have a tweet from our good friend, Brendan Beefish of Nautica. Ooh, the Brendan Beefish. Who? Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> He said of our John one episode, this was an outstanding episode. I mean, brush my shoulders. But anyways, the ghost of Lyanna hovering (laughs) over John's entire arc. And John one in particular was a particularly brilliant touch on the cannon girl's part. I mean, like, we're going to talk about Lyanna. I, I just thought that this was a good call out because you can't talk about John without talking about Lyanna. I want to have a disclaimer on our podcast that... You may have noticed that we speak on this podcast as if Rhaegar and Lyanna and having John as a child is a canon thing, and that's because it is. Uh, so hopefully as you read this story with us, you agree or you come to the great senses that we have, because that's just what it is, that it is what it is. John's Rhaegar and Lyanna's kid, that's that's the thing. That's the whole thing. That's the whole story. It is. And I mean, who else? embodies the same moodiness of Rhaegar as John. It's only John. Well, yeah. Or maybe it's a Sharadane. Oh my gosh. She killed herself. Yeah, but I guess she also be like, oh, and everyone abandoned me. Let Is me that an actual reason people think that? Like, do they think that John is moody because his mom was a Shara? If they think that Ned and Ashara are John's parents, is that what they think? I don't think so. Do they think that's a thing? No, I well, don't think so. I should tell them. <laughs> you should tell them. I should give them that one. They could use that. <laughs> We're going to jump into our lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's jump into our lightning round. I'm moving us. Uh, what we missed between John 1 and John 2. In Catalan 2, Catalan decodes a letter from her sister and convinces her husband to go to King's Landing as Hand of the King. I'm just imagining Catalan with like a decoder ring from a cereal box. Arya 1, frustrated with her needlework, Arya skips class to hang out with her brothers. Bran 2, Bran discovers a secret that pushes him into a coma. That's one way to put it. Tyrion (laughs) 1... Tyrion advises his princely nephew to pay his respects to the Starks, and he breaks his fast with Jamie and Cersei. John too. John makes his way around Winterfell to say his goodbyes, lingering on his half-brother, Bran, comatose in bed, and eventually giving Arya a needle of her own. Sounds like sex. It's not a Oh my god! This is this is not the 93 letter. John too. John and Ghost ascend the steps of the still and warm castle, and he stands frozen outside of Bran's room, while Ghost licks his fingers for courage, and he composes himself and finally enters. Because Lady Stark has not left Bran's side since his fall. 
Yeah, she's had all of her meals and chamber pots brought to her, Ooh. and she's scarcely even slept. There's a small bed that was even brought up there. Uh, she just keeps feeding Bran this honey, water, herb mixture to sustain him daily. Yeah, but because she's there, John is afraid to speak, and for a moment, it's as though Catelyn doesn't see him until, you know, of course she does. What are you doing here? She asked in a... That wasn't really flat, I guess. What are you doing here? She asked in a voice strangely flat and emotionless. He's come to say goodbye to Bran. And she tells him that they don't want him there and threatens to call the guards. But of course, John is brave and he knows he's about to become a man of the Night's Watch. So he pushes down his tears and his fears and stands up to her telling her that you can't stop me from saying goodbye. As much as I love Catelyn, we learn a lot of how she's abused John emotionally and iced him out his whole life. George says that like she didn't really pay much attention to him, but as others have discussed, that neglect in and of itself of how Catelyn treats John right to a ch- towards a child can be can be very abusive and and like Theon, John has been made a stranger in his own home. John tells Bran, leaning over him, that he. Rob, the girls, Rickon, all of them are waiting for him to wake up. He starts to cry. He feels tears on his face, and he no longer cares what Catelyn thinks. He tells Bran he has to go, that Uncle Benjen is waiting for him before the snows get too heavy. He kisses Bran lightly on the lips, and Cat begins to speak to him. I wanted him to stay here with me, Lady Stark said softly. John watched her, wary. She was not even looking at him. She was talking to him, but for a part of her, it was as though he were not even in the room. I prayed for it, she said dully. He was my special boy. I went to the set and prayed seven times to the seven faces of God that Ned would change his mind and leave him here with me. Sometimes prayers are answered. John did not know what to say. It wasn't your fault, he managed, after an awkward silence. Her eyes found him. They were full of poison. I need none of your absolution, bastard. John lowered his eyes. She was cradling one of Bran's hands. He took the other, squeezed it, fingers like the bones of birds. Goodbye, he said. He was at the door when she called out to him. John, she said. He should have kept going, but she'd never called him by his name before. He turned to find her looking at his face, as if she were seeing it for the first time. Yes, he said. It should have been you, she told him. Then she turned back to Bran and began to weep, her whole body shaking with the sobs. John had never seen her cry before. It was a long walk down to the yard. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. It's a, it, it's messed up. She, so she's lost in grief. John symbolizes that one broken link in her perfect rose-colored family. But obviously there's a lot more underneath that surface that she's not coming to terms with. He's this stain on Ned's honor. And she wasn't even supposed to be with this man who bore a bastard. Ironically, she was supposed to be with Brandon, who probably has a ton of bastards. If you haven't checked out Joe Magician's piece on Brandon Stark's bastards, it's just really fun. He speculates about who he could have been with and who what like what people in the story could have been bastards of Brandon. It's a nice little nice thing. Mm-hmm. And so you hear it in what John has said here. John has never been called by name by Catelyn. 
He suffered emotional abuse for 14 years. It may have been subtle on some days and awful on others, but it's definitely left these scars in John and his behavior. He's frozen before he goes in the room. He's afraid to say goodbye to his brother. The difference here is that Brandon Stark wouldn't have brought any of those bastards home, right? Ned is too honorable for his own good, so he brings John home and acknowledges him and also keeps that promise that he made to his sister. He should have left John somewhere like Starfall, as we've mentioned. That would have been probably his best option, or leave him in Dorne. But the problem is that they might use him politically, and it breaks that promise he made to Lyanna to keep him safe. So what you're saying is Ned should have left John with his mother's family down down in Starfall? Stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, as, as you said... It shouldn't have had to have been this way. And, you know, like we are trying to focus more in this scene on the effect of Catelyn on John's storyline. We'll obviously talk about this in Catelyn's whenever we get to her. But like you can see that Catelyn is framed here as kind of an antagonist in John's storyline. Like he comes away from this encounter by having finally like stood up to her. Like, he He's feeling those fears and he faces and overcomes those fears by going into that room as he's leaving Winterfell and he grows from that. As with many difficult situations and feelings of neglect and abuse, like John doesn't lay all those feelings to rest just because he's overcome this one moment. It comes up every now and then in other chapters. There is a part of me that wonders if this scene was kind of set up to be like, I don't know, reversal or closure between them or like later on there would be because in the 93 letter, Kat is heading to the wall with Arya and Bran to presumably of course to john where she sees that there might be safety for them after everything goes down as he gets to the yard it's bustling there are wagons and people everywhere rob is shouting commands amidst all the chaos and he seems taller and larger and more grown up since of course everyone had been grieving for bran oh rob and rob tells john that uncle benjamin's waiting for you John says leaving is harder than he thought, and Rob agrees. And of course, we have that scene with Rob and the snowflakes falling and melting in his hair. So sad. It it really is. Innocence. Innocence lost. It's how everyone sees Rob. He's out there with the snow falling in his hair. So beautiful. So sad. Brothers. They're brothers. In their hearts, John Rob asks if John saw Bran and John nods, unable to speak, because he's afraid that he will cry. He's afraid of giving himself away to tears. Rob says Bran won't die. He knows it. And John responds with, you Starks are hard to kill. Uh, 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 about that. In this moment, John has damned all of them. Uh, all of them died because of John. I, I mean, that's what Catelyn... No, that's not what she would say, but yeah. Anyways. His voice was flat and tired. The visit had taken all the strength from him. My mother. She was was very kind, John told him. Rob oh. looked relieved. Good, he smiled. The next time I see you, you'll be all in black. Like, he fucking isn't now. <laughs> John forced himself to smile back. It was always my color. How long do you think it'll be? Soon enough, Rob promised. He pulled John to him and embraced him fiercely. Farewell, Snow. John hugged him back. And you, Stark, take care of Bran. I'm like tearing up as we read this scene. I'm tearing up too. Black was always my color, of course, going to the Night's Watch, but also, and red. Mm, And red. 
and red. Especially when you get stabbed. This chapter is so, so like, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Definitely. This chapter is so heavy handed in all of the foreshadowing and thematics. I think it goes into that whole 93 letter. Uh, I think there's a lot of those echoes in here. If you haven't noticed, as we said, we're treating RLJ as it's canon because it is. And this whole entire like book is just like throwing things at you. Snow, Ned. It is. And th- also, of course, like, yeah, I, I love that. They're like, yeah, black is John's color because he's like a moody ass teenage boy. But this is such a good chapter in terms of setting up the relationships in John's life that have shaped him. Because if we don't have this moment between John and Rob, then the pull that John feels to desert the Night's Watch doesn't have that same like foundation. It's it's just such a beautiful moment, like because we we can feel it. John clearly feels it. The love that he has for his family members, like Arya and Rob and Bran, for example, and even Sansa and Rickon. I mean, he does think fondly of them. He has that memory later on when he thinks about all of them doing things at Winterfell and Sansa brushing Lady's coat and singing to herself and just all these sweet little memories. You know, John loves this family no matter how much abuse Lady Catelyn handed to him emotionally as he grew up. He loved them enough that this made up for it, you know, and he would be willing to forsake it all if it meant he could go fight for a place to be in that family yeah or for rob to live like like theon i should have died with him yeah rob tells john then like if he's finished benjamin is ready but of course john has one last goodbye to make to Arya. He stops in the armory. He picks up a package and off to Arya's chambers he goes. She's been locked in her room packing. She's not allowed to leave until she's done. And Nymeria, her wolf, is pacing back and forth, bringing Arya items of clothing as she points to them. It's the cutest thing because it's just like the cutest scene ever because Nymeria is like actually like very well trained somehow. Um, and then <laughs> Nymeria senses ghosts and then she sits back on her like haunches, you know, like dog dog wolves do which prompts Arya to roll around and sees john and then she also very cute just jump hugs him she glomps him as we say in the anime world and she explains that she didn't fold her clothes very ladylike enough so <laughs> Septim Mordain was like you're gonna do it again until it's right a proper southern lady doesn't just throw her clothes inside her chest like old rags she says <laughs> i mean it's Arya. Not gonna act Arya. like Ar- I mean Arya's in my yes. opinion Arya's right. <laughs> yeah, I do right. would just throw You're my just shit. Get messed up again. She's right though. Yeah, but she's not supposed to. She's supposed to fold them like a lady, and Marie Kondo would be so upset. I mean, so, so like I-, I have mixed feelings. I'm just gonna talk about folding clothes for a moment. Like on one hand, like sometimes you don't got time. You gotta just throw shit in your in your bag and be like, all right, this is it. But like, what if you're going for multiple days and you need to fit more things? Sometimes you do need to fold it if you want to bring more clothes. Yeah, shit's hard, dude. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> this scene really shows us why Arya and John get along so well, right? They they're brunette outsiders and they're very redhead home. Uh, they're the closest to their dad looks wise, so they obviously feel that connection. But they just kind of feel like outsiders. They do, they do, and within their society too, of course, not just in their home. John points out Septimordain probably wouldn't love Nymeria packing with Arya. 
But since that he's there and they're packing, Arya can pack the super secret present he brought her, which is, of course, a needle of her own, a sword. A sword. <laughs> he tells her to close the door. It's the same exact language. It, it is. I was no it's the ninety three letter. Close the door and come here. I noticed that too, but I was also just like, mm, interesting. Ninety three letter, John and Arya. It's canon. Arya's eyes went wide, dark eyes like his. A sword, she said in a small hushed breath. Yes, I love it. I love that they talk about their gray, dark gray eyes. Yes. Uh, I think that's great. And I think it's interesting that George doesn't focus on it often. He builds it in the first and then lets it fall out. So you forget like, oh, Liana looked like Arya. Oh, why are these hints here? Yeah, there's a <sighs> so lot of good. triangulation, but it's it's very intentional on George's oh, part. Yeah. Needle Steel is a deep blue sheen, and he takes it out of its soft gray leather case. He tells her to be careful that it's sharp enough to shave with. Arya responded, girls don't shave. Suddenly, everything about this world in Westeros seems okay to me, by the way. Like, that gang rape violence and systemic class issues? Sure, whatever. But, hairy legs? I'm good. I can live there. I'm in. I mean, you- I belong. You need it, right? You gotta use it to keep in some of that warmth maybe yeah in winter you in winter we keep hair on our legs yeah and i mean like things aren't super hygienic you don't always have like underwear like yeah you need that hair to protect your private bits you need you need the hair in general that's why we grow it people yes america get it together <laughs> needle is skinny just like her and john actually had it specially made in the forge by micken and oh. he had it styled after the bravosi swords he says it won't be able to chop a man's head off, but it certainly could fill him full of holes. I think that's crazy interesting because that's like Arya's whole thing, right? She trains under a bravosi. Her dad's head gets chopped off. She tries to make it alone in the wild. She ends up poking people full of holes, right? We get that part in Arya 13 uh, in Storm. The, is there gold in the village? She shouted as she drove the blade up his back. Is there silver? Gems? She stabbed twice more. Is there food? Where's Lord Beric? You know, just the how many, how many, how many, how many poke, 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 poke. Oh. That's a part of this plot. And then she actually ends up in Bravos. Uh, like I said, lots of heavy-handed hinting here. Oh, for sure. And, like, it's great because the style of sword that John chose for her, first of all, John has done his research. Good job, John. All right, looking that sh looking that shit up. But then that leads to, of course, Ned, as long as well as you saying that they're going to Bravos. He picks someone who is knowledgeable in that style of sword play, and then John gives Arya uh, her first lesson, which is to stick him with the pointy end. And of course, like there's a theory that John returns from the dead, changed, and missing some of his memory, a la Beric Dondarrion. I personally am, like, a big subscriber to that theory as well as the corollary to it. Like, um, Nauticast actually does a really great breakdown of this theory in one of the John chapters that they did. I forgot which one um, it was specifically. And how this this uh, lost memory might mean that John wouldn't really recognize Jane Poole as you know jane and like might actually believe that she is Arya, since he is missing some of his memory and i do think that this is significant because like for those i do think that this is significant because like theon one in wins puts so much emphasis on massey justin massey taking jane north and how that separates jane of course from theon's pov 
And that basically means that besides John, we have no other POVs or characters who know what Arya looks like up at the wall. So no one's there to dispute John's like mistake. And the pieces are all really falling together structurally. But like in regards like to the word stick them with the pointy end, um, I actually like I thought of this when I was listening to you, Chloe, on uh, the Game of Owns podcast, when you were all discussing Arya and stuff, like how Arya's story is just full of these magic words. They act kind of like, you know, the open sesame and the Latin and things like that. Like Valor Mergulis buys her entry into the House of Black and White. And I kind of wonder if Sikkim with the pointy end are going to be the magic words for like between Arya and this like broken version of John. that's like, it's me. I'm the real Arya. Ooh, that's interesting. That would be a really interesting plot. I mean... The weird thing is he's going with Massey, right? Yeah. That's, uh, she's going off with Massey right now. So I- I'm interested to see whether she meets Arya first or whether mm. John meets her first. Yeah, that's true. That's true. She could be like, that's weird. You know, like the way she like kind of sees yeah. John, not John, Sam, like off at the side. Right. And she's like, this is a nice guy. Yes, Absolutely. Arya's worried she's not going to meet anyone to practice with in King's Landing, she tells John. You'll find someone, John promised her. King's Landing is a true city, a thousand times the size of Winterfell. Until you find a partner, watch how they fight in the yard. Run and ride, make yourself strong in whatever you do. Arya knew what was coming next. They said it together. Don't Don't tell Sansa! Yeah, just put that. Just put them together. Pretend we yeah. actually did it. Oh my god! <laughs> I don't know. I don't understand siblings, but this is kind of what I imagine it's supposed to be like. Probably. I mean, same. They laugh, but finally they have to depart each other. John messed up her hair. I'll miss you, little sister. Suddenly, she looked like she was going to cry. I wish you were coming with us. Different roads sometimes lead to the same castle. Who knows? Oh, no. Like the Red Keep? Are you saying the Red Keep, King Egg? Oh. King Egg? The Keg? <laughs> <And> also, <laughs> the Keg. Uh, also, I love, he says in this passage, if I leave any later, my whole first year on the wall will be emptying chamber pots. And then he becomes the Lord Commander's steward. Yes. Again, heavy handed. <laughs> I, I love that, though. I'm not going to act I like too. I don't like that cheesiness right there, because I do. It makes you feel smart. Yeah, and also there's that it reminds me of that the poop montage in in yeah. season seven. I like that scene. I like that montage. I stand it. I know you do. In the Citadel. Yeah, I I have a breakdown of it over on like the Knights Cast. Go listen to them. We're gonna just call out everyone today. Oh After the embrace, John actually um almost forgets to ask her what the sword's name is because you know all the best swords have names. Can't you guess? John teased. Your very favorite thing. Arya seemed puzzled at first, then it came to her. She was that quick. They said it together. We have to do this again? Okay. Ready? Three, two, one. Needle! Needle! The memory of her laughter warmed him on the long ride north. Maybe you're right. This is what siblings do, right? They just say things at the same time. I don't know. Maybe the siblings we made along along the way. way. That sounds weird when we split it like that. Anyways. It's that 93 outline letter. Oh my god. It's banging. Oh Just my banging. god. The siblings making siblings. Wow. Yeah. 
uh, other than that, you know, there's some really great groundwork in this chapter, like all the relationships that define John, like Kat, Rob, and Arya. You know, George is just showing us how close John and Arya are. They don't finish each other's sentences. They say them at the exact same time, I guess. General general <laughs> characterization stuff. Yeah, and then the warmth of Arya's laughter and like, uh, you know, Rob snowflakes of his hair. It's, it's all so warm and soft and different in contrast with the coldness at Castle Black, which we're going to get to in a second. So without further ado, we jump into our lightning round for John 3. What we missed between John 2 and John 3. The first thing we missed is Daenerys 2, in which Daenerys marries Khal Drogo. Then we get to Eddard 2. Robert and Ned ride through the Barrowlands discussing Daenerys' marriage and the ghosts of the rebellion. In Tyrion 2, Tyrion accompanies John North, debating about how life will be on the wall. Catelyn 3. Catelyn finds herself waking from a coma in Bran's tower now that he's under attack, and she holds off the assailant long enough for Summer to protect them. Sansa 1. Sansa's taken on the perfect date by her crown prince, but as they come upon Arya and her friend play fighting, the date dissolves in her hands. You're spoiling it! Eddard's spoiling <laughs> everything! <laughs> Eddard 3 Eddard's daughters are brought to a pop-up trial on what happened at the Ruby Ford Arya and Joffrey's stories wildly differ and when Sansa is unable to condemn Joffrey her wolf suffers for it Bran 3 Bran dreams of a crow teaching him to fly and he awakens to his wolf named Summer and his broken body Catelyn 3. Catelyn sails to King's Landing with Ser Roderick, meeting with Littlefinger and Varys to uncover the identity of the cat's paw. John 3. John's attitude doesn't exactly make him friends at the Wall. Several other new recruits gang up on him, and Donald Noy helps him understand why he's not making friends. After meeting up with Tyrion, John speaks with J.R. Mormont, who tells him that his half-brother has awakened. Woo! The courtyard rang to the song of swords. Yes, song imagery, just like that song imagery that was so prevalent in Theon's last chapters, mm -hmm. as in the, it is in Sansa's chapters, comes back around with John in the form of swordplay. George kind of uses swordplay sword play as a, a symbolical, you know, just a, a pin to put in places, right? We see that with Brienne and Jamie with their sexual tension yes. and their fight. Uh it's just interesting, and especially because John really starts this chapter off with that same Winterfell naivety we see in Sansa. This is kind of like his tourney, right? Like, he's arriving at Castle Black. This is everything. The men of the songs are supposed to be Aemon the Dragon Knight and Darren the Young Dragon, his heroes of songs that he thinks about. Uh, this, it's the tourney for him, but it turns to dog shit, kind of, instead of being this magical thing. He learns, wow, the wall really isn't this beautiful, magical experience. And it's also similar to the way that Theon romanticizes ironborn culture, right? Like, and how he's like, I'm going to be a hero, and we're going to have all these ships, and we're going to restore our former glory. And turns out, like, everyone hates him. Everyone's yeah, like, who the absolutely. fuck are you? Major Theon vibes in that. They're like, yeah. who is this guy? <laughs> Lord Snow. I mean, that's exactly what it is, right? Because, like, in the courtyard of Castle Black, John's over here, he's besting a boy named Gren. And then Alistair Thorne calls it all off, and Gren complains that John broke his wrist. And Alistair's like, mm, if these swords had an edge, you'd be dead. And then he insults everyone, including John. This is not what John thought this was going to be like. So we get that first mention of Lord Snow. John hated that name, a mockery Sir Alistair had hung on him the first day he came to practice. The boys had picked it up, and now he heard it everywhere. 
He slid the sword, the long sword, back into its scabbard. No, he replied. Thorn strode toward him. Crisp black leathers whispering faintly as he moved. He was a compact man. That's such an interesting word. Compact man of 50 years, spare and hard, with gray and black hair and eyes like chips of onyx. The truth now, he commanded. I'm tired, John admitted. His arm burned from the weight of the longsword, and he was starting to feel bruises now that the fight was done. What you are is weak. I won. No, the Oryx lost. One of the other boys sniggered. John knew better than to reply. He had beaten everyone Sir Alistair had sent against him, yet it gained him nothing. The master-at-arms served up only derision. Thorn hated him, John had decided. Of course, he hated the other boys even worse. Yeah, Alistair Thorn just hates everyone. Yeah, Alistair Thorn hates his life, dude. Don't take it personally. You think he wants to be there? I mean, like, he's at the wall because Robert made him go because he's a Targaryen supporter, which is the biggest irony I know. In all of this. I know. I really wonder. I, I don't know if we're going to get that like reveal for Alistair Thorne I want it to happen but uh, nothing nothing like won't. comes together that well right like right we those those moments are intentionally withheld from us by George it's interesting though because at the same time of him being this big adult bully Alistair Thorne I mean now that he has the Night's Watch he kind of has taken to like this is all he has so he wants it to be spectacular in the way it's supposed to be and this is the way the Night's Watch should be run and boy, we're going to run it this way. Obviously, it's not the right way, but I will give him that, that he's just this old man trying to put pride in all he has left. He is, but like, you don't have to do that by pushing down everyone around you. You can do it by lifting them up and making a beautiful, wonderful, great legacy. Yeah, solidarity. Exactly. Yeah, and I don't know. Again, John's upset because he's beaten everyone that Thorne has sent against him, but he's like not getting anything from it. He's getting no fucking pats on the back. Well, and of course, that's where it comes in that the goal of this exercise isn't really technically, you know, to be the best. It's to improve your team. Yeah. It's to find the weak link and have that person train and get better. It's about improving, John. You're supposed to be a team. The Night's Watch is a team, and he doesn't get that yet. He will by the end of the chapter, but he doesn't get that yet. Yes. He has no friends there, no one. Not even the more senior recruits are as good as he or Rob are at fighting, but he thinks. And I just really need to call out this line because I'm never going to let go how pubescent John is. He's like, eh, John followed the rest back to the armory walking alone. He often walked alone here. And it just reminds me of that line from Boulevard of Broken Dreams of I walk alone and I walk my shadows. Only one that walks beside me because you know that John loves this song. He plays the song every day when he gets back to his cell and he listens to it on repeat. You know, interestingly enough, yes, he does love that song. However, right before we did this episode, I want you to know that I did an experiment where I listened to My Chemical Romance and for about an hour. It's an experiment. And, you know, I for think science. he definitely listens to My Chemical Romance. He's, he's obviously singing Helena to himself as he lights Egret's pyre on fire. So... It's both different yeah. phases of his life, you know? Right now is his, yeah. like his boulevard of broken dreams phase and then later on he's gonna yeah his green day phase but not like the more pop punk stuff like here it's the sad sad stuff yeah you know it's it's funny though because he says he often walked alone here um 
You've been here for like a week. I know. I often walk alone here. You've been here literally one week. Sit down, John. Dude, a week's a long ass time when you're only 14 years old. It feels yeah, real that's long. Very true. Unlike it now. Does feel very long. Now that, you know, Being we 14 are. 14 is a hell of a drug. It is. When you're weathered and old, time just goes by so quickly. <laughs> we get some quick descriptions of the other recruits, right? We get Darren, the later deserter. Uh, he's quick, but he fears being hit. Pip uses his sword like a dagger. Gren is slow and clumsy. John thinks that Jaren was weak as a girl. Not okay, John. Yeah, chill the fuck out, John. Yeah, he thinks Halder hits hard, but he isn't good at dodging. The more time he spent with them, the more John despised them. <laughs> so okay, moody. you're thinking of these people so negatively. You don't know them. And again, like, he's just so judgy. Like, this isn't a contest, no. John. He... They didn't choose to be here. None of these people want to be here right now. I know. It's such moodiness. <laughs> despised. It's such a strong word. And it's always cold here at the wall, but I think this is a fun line that might be some foreshadowing. Like, in a few years, he would forget what it felt like to be warm. Like, of course, <laughs> yeah, like, sure, it's cold, but like, is it because you're dead? Yes. Yes. Also because of the long night coming. Oh, that too. That too. Every In a few years, he's going to be fighting the whites. Oh, wow. So much foreshadowing in these... Yes, so chapters. heavy-handed. So heavy-handed. And the people are even colder at the wall. Just like, he thinks only Tyrion knew the truth of what being a Castle Black would have been like. And he wonders if Eddard knew, you know, like there was that scene in Tyrion where Tyrion almost makes John cry. And I'm like, chill out, Tyrion. Everyone needs to chill the fuck out. Anyways, John thinks that Ned knew what being at the wall would be like and feels even sadder at that. Of he course he knew. He did, but and actually he didn't really want John to go to the wall. Yeah, John just like woke up and was like, well, no one wants me here and my dad's going south and I can't stay here with Lady Catalan, so I gotta go and I guess I'll just go where I might be wanted, where <laughs> bastards are welcome. And that's just like, uh, I don't know what to do. He's like, I can't deal with this right now. I have to go, I don't know, deal with like my personal trauma and my other kids and like the fucking king who is being a giant kid right now <laughs> and rule the kingdom now, apparently. But there's also, again, another line in John that I also need to call out. Even his uncle Benjamin had abandoned him in this cold place at the end of the world. So many moods, God. John. Abandoned. He is so moody sometimes. It's so dramatic. It, it's so great. You literally decided to do this. You got a wild hair up your ass and you woke up and you were like, my family sucks and they all are feasting with royals and... I'm going to go to the wall. Like, you chose this. This is what you chose. This is what happens Being when you a make- teenager is hard. This is what happens when you make drunken decisions, John. Yeah, making a drunk decision the first time you ever got drunk. This is what you chose. Like, you chose a life of celibacy in a winter wasteland. Yeah. He could, he could still leave. <laughs> he hasn't taken the oaths yet. That's true. Uh, before Benjamin went on his ranging, he warns John that he cannot go on the ranging and that people only get what they earn at the wall. Mm, debatable. We'll get into that. You're no ranger, John. Only a green boy, but the smell of summer is still on you. Stupidly, John <laughs> argued. That might be my favorite line <laughs> in the whole entire book. Stupidly, John argued. I'll be 15 on my name day, he said, almost a man grown. 
Benjamin Stark frowned. A boy you are, and a boy you'll remain until Sir Alistair says you are fit to be a man of the Night's Watch. If you thought your Stark blood would win you easy favors, you were wrong. I mean, debatable. We put aside our old families when we swear our vows. Your father will always have a place in my heart, but these are my brothers now. I mean, and he didn't listen to his uncle. He literally still didn't learn the lesson. He has to learn it from Donald Noy later. Yeah. Because, how, like, how do I reach these kids? Um, shit, man. When is he going to start? He's got to get to the point where he's saying shit at the same time as all these other boys, like he was with Arya. Oh, I get it now. That's the ju- that's the contrast between yes. how he feels with his siblings and how he feels with these people who are supposed to be his family yes. now. I see it. They're not. They're not. Yes. So as he leaves, Benjen tells John, we'll speak when I return. Which, that's a famous last line if I've ever heard it. It really is. It truly is. Yeah, there's what, Rhaegar, Brandon, Benjamin, Ned. They all said, we'll talk about it when I come back. And back, they did not come. Yeah, it's like uh, when, what, the guy says he's about to retire in two days and then dies. Yeah. It's that same trope. And again, not gonna not gonna let this go about how much of an emo little boy John is being right now because as Benjamin leaves, then John out of like um spite imagines his uncle dying on a snowy road and his blood coming out, and then he's like feels a little guilty and then afterward and then it goes afterward he sought out ghost in the loneliness of his cell and buried his face in his thick white fur if he must be alone he would make solitude his armor this is not what Tyrion told you I know Tyrion Tyrion armor yourself in it it will never be used to hurt you John I'm gonna have a solitude of armor I don't know yeah he's so 14 loneliness is my cloak is my only friend he has such friend. growth within a year like he has such after gro- he goes to the wildlings I think that's uh true he has such growth within this chapter too they're all just such small babs and like I don't know who agreed who agreed to elect a 15 16 year old boy to be their leader who agreed to this Sam. Who thought this was a good idea? Of course Sam did, because he's also like that same age. Adults. I know, why did the adults <laughs> agree to this? Uh, I just want to... There's this tweet that was going around on Twitter, not related to A Song of Ice and Fire necessarily, but I thought it was hilarious. The most unrealistic... It comes from Johnny McNulty. The most unrealistic part of fantasy books is when 18-year-old boys spend five books insisting they're not the chosen one, instead of immediately saying, yeah, that sounds right. I, I just really... yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. There's this interesting line that we get in this passage uh, based on what we learn and, you know, of course, the others. Castle Black had no godswood, only a small sept and a drunken septon, but John could not find it in him to pray to any gods, old or new. If they were real, he thought, they were as cruel and implacable as winter. Just think it's interesting. We're not going to go that deep into it, but, you know, it's interesting in the context of the children and the others and the whites and, yeah. Cruel and implacable gods. That's what the the others are. Truly, truly. And in what is another likely dish of irony, John is missing his quote-unquote true brothers. Yeah, there's all these heavy bits of, hey, secretly John's not related to them, and he's always felt like an outsider, and he's never fit in, and he's secretly the king. Did you notice? It's just peppered through all these books. Uh, in, In Clash of Kings, we focus more on the parentage over everything, he has all those thoughts with Egret and Gil, wondering if this is how his father felt when he hooked up with his mom. 
but the whole books have these underlying just tones of, hey, something's not right here. John's not who you think he is. Yeah, there's a lot of really masterful double entendres. I'm noticing it so much more this time around. Even little tiny things that are just little little play of words. Yeah. And yeah, everything's going to be recontextualized. <laughs> of course, he misses Arya the most of his siblings, even more than he misses Rob. Skinny little thing that she was, all scraped knees and tangled hair and torn clothes, so fierce and willful. Arya never seemed to fit. No more than he had, yet she could always make John smile. He would give anything to be with her now to muss up her hair once more and watch her make a face to hear her finish a sentence with him. No, you guys don't finish each other's sentences. You say them at the same time. I've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah, we literally just tried to do this last last chapter. <laughs> we cannot. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, Arya understands him, as we learned last chapter. That's pretty much what we're hearing here. Yeah, finish each other's sandwiches. And part of me is like, is this 93 letter vibes? Again, always, always. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Just make it weird, Eliana, thanks. Oh, you're welcome. No, Ooh, now it's what his, you're known for. Now it's his aunt, you know? This is what we wanted, right? Hey, yeah, exactly. It's better than being his half-sister slash cousin, right? I do think it's better that it is better. I don't know. Do you? I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. All incest is incest. (laughs) While John is imagining his siblings, John is ambushed because Gren, Toad, and some other boys are here. There's a weird jump also in this chapter where he like is in his cell. The next thing we know, he's in the armory. I really don't get it where he's being ambushed. Anyways, Gren. It's kind of weird. It's a, if you don't, if you blink, you'll miss like the very tiny context of where he is. Yeah. It, it's a little clumsy. Anyway first book out of five grand toad and some other boys are there because john makes them look bad and john like thinks they are all bullies and like wait till you hear you're actually the bully john wow you publicly embarrass them they're just here to pay up you know like you publicly embarrass those bitches yeah it's true though even though they're bigger than him john thinks on how he bested all of them in the yard and that it wouldn't be hard to take them all on he threatens to beat them but before he can get his sword one of the boys twists it behind his back and then John shouts some sick comebacks at them, and I, I don't know. John really does have good comebacks. And then Toad says, The little lordling has a mouth on him, he said. He had pig eyes. Is he a toad or a pig? Anyway, small and shiny. Is that your mommy's mouth, bastard? What was she? Some whore? Tell us her name. Maybe I had her a time or two. He laughed. Yeah, this gets John pissed. He gets a few good blows in before he's thrown on the ground, and everyone just starts kicking him. Yeah, you know, like how they do it in the TV shows. You know the yeah, scene absolutely. where the guy falls and everyone's like comes around, starts kicking him. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen it in many high school shows. Yeah, yeah. But because you know John is super trained and stuff, he like starts rolling away from the blows and it makes me think maybe John is right. I I think maybe John really could take on all four of them at once. I think it's really an important nod that we hear that Garland is an mm. accomplished swordsman and takes on multiple when it will multiple men at once to yeah. train uh john is semi-capable of this at 14 that we see so major jamie lannister arthur dane vibes right he's a legend he's going to be a force to be reckoned with in the wars to come yes but before all that can happen gotta get some humbling and donald noy booms in and he's like keep the fighting out of my armory and he breaks up the whole fight the four boys try to pin it on john saying he tried to kill them and and they're lying Donald Noy sends the boys away for treatment, but tells John to stay. He reminds John, the watch has need of every man we have on the wall, so stop being so sensitive about what people are saying about your mom. 
and uh, get with it. John says, whoa, Lord Eddard's honor would not allow me as a bastard of a sex worker. Like, how dare they? But Donald Noy is like, well, didn't stop him from fathering a bastard at all, did it? And then John tries to leave, but Noy is like, no, you go when I tell you to go. Like, literally. I mean, what? John, what are you thinking? You join a place where, like, people give orders and shit. And, like, he tells John to fucking look at him when he is speaking. Yeah, you better put some respect on Donald Noy's name. He made Robert's Warhammer. He lost his arm in the siege at Storm's End, in the rebellion. Like, put some respect on that. You respect Donald Noy. Yeah, he's a respectable man. He's got great advice. All right. Words won't make your mother a whore. She was what she was, and nothing Toad says can change that. You know, we have men on the wall whose mothers were whores. Not my mother, John thought stubbornly. He knew nothing of his mother. Eddard Stark would not talk of her. Yet he dreamed of her at times, so often that he could almost see her face. In his dreams, she was beautiful and high-born, and her eyes were kind. You think you had it hard being a High Lord's bastard? The armorer went on. That boy, Jaren, is a Septon's get. And Carter Pike is the base-born son of a tavern wench. Now he commands Eastwatch by the sea. John thinks that Liana, his mother, which is Liana, in his dreams is beautiful and high-born and has kind eyes because... It's a very, this is very Cinderella, right? Mm-hmm. So we talked about Theana's Cinderella, but Jon Snow is the ultimate Cinderella story. Secretly the princess, the prince, uh, brought up, has an evil stepmother, you know, loved his father, but an evil stepmother. It's the total fairy tale here. And Cinderella has that, you know, head in the clouds vision of, oh, like I have a real family somewhere, you know, blah, blah, blah. I miss my mom who was beautiful and kind and dreams of her. Well, there you go. There's Jon Snow, his little Cinderella story. Somehow, in his dreams, he sees Lyanna. Yeah. It kind of makes you wonder if there is some magic going on there with him almost seeing Lyanna. Just barely. Um, there's a Freudian theory, and I'm I'm going to really butcher it, of like what you're saying, of like this, the fantasy that children might harbor of secretly, like, their parents are not their parents, and they're secretly, like royalty or something like that oh yeah i'm really i'm really fucking it up but anyways no i know kind of what you're talking about yeah and of course liana was in real life kind and she stood up for what was right and she followed her heart you know so it's just interesting that he has this idea of her in his head and this idea of honor and who his dad quote unquote would have banged and that he doesn't think that ned would have just had sex with some random harlotin he thinks that it was you know, some woman, which also lends credence to those people that think it's Ashara, but that was the point of letting people think it was Ashara, letting them think it was some other highborn that maybe if John came out looking like her, they'd be covered. Yeah. There's all of that in, like, I guess Ned using it as a justification of, like, this is why I'm keeping keeping my bastard around, because I owe it to, I don't know, someone. The way Edric yeah. Storm gets um, better treatment than all the rest of Robert's bastards. Right. Life, John repeated bitterly. The armorer could talk about life. He'd had one. He'd only taken the black after he'd lost an arm at the siege of Storm's End. Before that, he'd smith for Stannis Baratheon, the king's brother. He'd seen the Seven Kingdoms from one end to the other. He'd feasted and wenched and fought in a hundred battles. They said it was Donald Noy who'd forged Robert, King Robert's Warhammer, 
the one that crushed the life from Rhaegar Targaryen on the trident. Ah, He'd done all the things that Jon would never do, and then, when he was old, well past 30, he'd taken a glancing blow from an axe, and the wound had festered until the whole arm had to come off. Only then, crippled, had Donald Noy come to the wall, when his life was all but over. I kind of find this quote really interesting because it tells you what Jon's values are. Like, we see him throughout this chapter trying to prove himself through like his fighting prowess because that's the way that he got any sort of recognition i guess at um at winterfell that's why he feels pride when people are like oh you're better at this thing than rob or like oh you can like make a mark for yourself here because you're good at like this thing it's especially because we see how catelyn treated him and that's how he's trying to find his identity but also in the first chapter we saw that john thinks that jamie lannister looks like a king and that shows us that he's like still very much wrapped up in this idea that heroism is about strength and he hasn't unpacked that yet. And he's trying to live up to that until, you know, the end of this discussion with Donald Noy. And he thinks that Noy came to the Night's Watch when his life was all over and that he thinks of Noy's life only in terms of like how he aided in this sort of like wartime heroism. But like, that's not the only thing that heroism is. And we see that in John's character later. Like, I think that one of John's most heroic deeds right was letting the wildlings through the wall there's no fighting involved in that and he gives the practical reason aloud to the other brothers on the wall when they're all like why the fuck are you doing this and he says that every single one of them that dies out there is another enemy that's going to come back who's going to be even more difficult to fight later on but we see internally uh he's not voicing it aloud but john is letting them through because he sees all the free folk as people he's truly seen them and cares about them and i mean like Donald Noy's life isn't done just because he can't, like, fight and do those things. I mean, his life is done in Storm, but whatever. <laughs> That's something I was thinking. It's a little silly that John thought, oh, his life was over. Like, how awful. And it reminds me of, uh, oh, God, what was it in one of the Sansa chapters when she was just thinking, oh, may not Barristan, but even then, you know, she thinks, oh, how horrible, like, for this old man. But that's not, yeah. their life's not over. You can have a life outside of that you can have a life doing many things outside of that it's kind of weird because in barristan's chapters you kind of get that tension of both right he both thinks that his life is over in some ways because i mean he is kind of old like he is old for their society like he is actually getting up to that that point but he didn't think that his life was over because he wasn't in King's Landing and able to fight there. He found a new purpose for himself. And then there's this line from Donald Noy that I truly love. Yes, life, Noy said. A long life or a short one. It's up to you, Snow. The road you're walking. One of your brothers will slit your throat for you one night. Um, on the nose. <laughs> uh, one, four... Who, who knows how many, you know? How many of them, John? So John snaps at Donald Noy. He says that they're not his brothers. They hate me because I'm better than them. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> John. John. Chill out. John, baby. No, they hate you because you act like you're better than they are. They look at you and see a castle-bred bastard who thinks he's a lordling. The armor leaned close. You're no lordling. Remember that. You're a snow, not a stark. You're a bastard and a bully. A bully? 
John almost choked on the word. The accusation was so unjust it took his breath away. They were the ones who came after me, four of them. Four that you've humiliated in the yard. Four who are probably afraid of you. I've watched you fight. It's not training with you. Put an edge on your sword and they'd be dead meat. You know it. I know it. They know it. You leave them nothing. You shame them. Does that make you proud? John hesitated. He did feel proud when he won. Why shouldn't he? But the armorer was taking that away too, making it sound as if he was doing something wrong. They're all older than me, he said defensively. Older and bigger and stronger, that's the truth. I'll wager your master at arms taught you how to fight bigger men at Winterfell, though. Who was he? Some old knight? Sir, Sir Roderick Cassell, John said warily. There's a trap here. He felt it closing around him. Donald Noy leaned forward into John's face. Now, think on this, boy. None of these others have ever had a master at arms until Sir Alistair. Shit. The worst. Their fathers were farmers and wagon men and poachers, smiths and miners, and oars on a trading galley. What they know of fighting, they learned between decks, in the alleys of Old Town and Lannisport, and wayside brothels and taverns on the King's Road. They may have clacked a few sticks together before they came here, but I promise you, not one in twenty was ever rich enough to own a real sword. His look was grim. So, how do you like the taste of your victories now, Lord Snow? Don't call me that, John said sharply, but the force had gone out of his anger. Suddenly he felt ashamed and guilty. I never, I didn't think. Best you start thinking, Noy warned him, that or sleep with a dagger by your bed. Now go. Welcome to the real world, bitch. That's how that feels like. That's a total like is. truth bomb. Like this is the real life. Bitch. It is. It's such a pivotal it's such a pivotal exchange for John. And it's totally privilege. I mean, this is what happens when you have privilege and you don't realize even what the extent of what that privilege offers you, right? You're a bastard. You've never had an empty plate, though. You've been acknowledged as a lord's son. Your father doesn't beat you. He doesn't drink until he passes out. Yeah, your stepmom can be a bitch towards you sometimes, but you're living an otherwise good life. You have a master at arms. You have the pleasure of fighting with steel, beautiful steel that's forged literally in your castle. Somebody makes that steel into a sword. You went and got a secret present made for your little sister of a sword and no one batted an eyelash. No one told your dad. Nobody, you didn't get in trouble for it. You're, you're privileged, mm-hmm. Jon Snow. That's what D- Donald Noy is telling you. You've been private schooled your entire life by high quality teachers that your dad, who, shame on him, fathered a bastard, paid for. I'm also realizing that it's so important. Like, there's this line in here, right, where Donald Noy says they may have clacked a few sticks together before they came here. And just a few chapters before this John one, this John three chapter, if you will, um, we have the the chapter where Sansa and Joffrey go out, and Joffrey is kind of lording over his fighting ability, right, with, with Micah. And Micah and Arya are just clacking a few sticks together. He's not trained. He's just doing the best he can, and Arya has put him in this position. And I think you're supposed to see... Um, Yes. A sort of parallel. Like, there's so many that happens before, right? Between, like, bastards aren't allowed to hit princes and stuff. And, of course, that's ironic because... Bastard. Joffrey's... Prince. Yeah. 
Joffrey's yeah, a bastard. Jon Snow's the prince. Well, of course, exactly. And we're we're drawing those connections between like how Joffrey is acting and Jon is acting in this chapter. But Jon, the difference is that Jon learns, right? He takes this lesson from Donald Noy and he gains humility, whereas Joffrey never does. Joffrey continues to use that power over other people. Yes. As John leaves Donald Noy, he admires the wall, a pale gray that sometimes shines like a wall of light. Tyrion Lannister sidles up beside him, and John thinks that the wall feels like the end of the world. And, of course, um, we get a lot of the wall in this moment, and George R. R. Martin has talked about how Hadrian's wall is very much his inspiration for, um, for the wall. And he uses similar language to describe Hadrian's Wall, like how, you know, it predates anything. He goes back and talks about his visit there, and he describes it as, it was a very profound feeling for the Romans at the time. This was the end of civilization. It was the end of the world. We know that there were Scots beyond the hills, but they didn't know that. It could have been any kind of monster. It was a sense of this barrier against dark forces, and it planted something in me. So. Hmm, I love that. That's really smart. He made it uh, three times as long and 700 feet high and made it out of ice. Yes, which he kind of regrets now, I guess, after seeing the Hoover Dam. He was like, mm, I made the wall too big. Yeah, but, it's you fantasy. Know. Who cares? It's your book, George. Yeah. Do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. <laughs> when John sees the wall up close, he realizes that Castle Black is no true castle because it can't be defended from any other direction other than from the northern side. So now I'm thinking about, again... That storm chapter between John and Egret, where she's like, "Is this a true uh, castle?" And like those last lines, John tells her it is, and now I'm just like all fucked up uh, inside. Say something, I'm giving up on you. Just cradling oh. her. In his arms. Oh, and the, he's like, "Yeah." The wall is so massive; it sometimes feels as though it isn't there, and sometimes feels it is as if it is everything. Somehow, John knew that if it fell, the world went with it. It's the hinge of the world. Everything turns there. Yes. As John is admiring the wall, Tyrion Lannister sneaks up next to him to have a conversation on what's on the other side. John laments that Tyrion will not be learning anything from John about that, and he also says of the other side, It's nothing special. The rangers say it's just woods and mountains and frozen lakes with lots of snow and ice. And again, we get some of that naivete from John and the ethnocentrism of the Westerosi. Like the Northerners and the Brothers on the Wall have been like dehumanizing the free folk for so long, and that's why it's so difficult when we get to fucking dance. Like that they've erased what's on the other side of the wall. But of course, again, a large part of John's storyline is seeing their humanity and like about about there being nothing special on the other side. Like there's a reason we have this fucking wall, and it's called Ice Demons. Right. It's there for a right? reason. Think about the pact. You know the pact. I feel like the pact is something that we obviously don't know the exactitude of it, right? We don't know the details, but it's probably super simple, right in front of our noses, and super important, right? The Children of the Forest for sure helped build this wall with Bran the Builder, so... Tyrion calls Jon then his new nickname, Lord Snow, and Jon says, don't call me that. And then we get, like, a reprisal of the end of the first chapter. Would you rather be called the Imp? Let them see that their words can cut you, and you'll never be free of the mockery. If they want to give you a name... Take it, make it your own. Then they can't hurt you with it anymore. We learned in this conversation that the Night's Watch is actually so understaffed that John can pretty much pick any cell that he wants. He picked the one in Hardin's Tower with the broken battlement. Once upon a time, the wall had 5,000 men. 
Now it only holds a tenth of that. Yes, I love this. This is great laying of this ground to show us the foundation of the Night's Watch is flawed. And with winter coming, there will be trouble. A real threat will be coming. Yes. Tyrion jokes about telling Ned to arrest the stonemasons, and the conversation turns to Benjen. John feels immense guilt at the thought he had of his uncle dying. He turns away from Tyrion because he feels like he has a way of sensing things. Yeah, and now we see that the reason Benjen went out is because, of course, many rangers have been vanishing lately. They were searching for Waymar Royce, uh, maybe as far as the Shadow Tower in the mountains, you know, Waymar Royce. Yeah. In the prologue. And I really hope they don't find him because, you know, how he ended up, which is the point. All these rangers are gone missing and assumedly they found whatever found Waymar. Yeah. Ugh. 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 Yes. Okay. Horror. There's very light horror throughout this chapter and I love it. <laughs> Ice demons on the other side of the wall. Anyway, Tyrion jokes. I, how can you think there's nothing special if like people are disappearing? Anyways, Tyrion jokes once more about grumpkins on the other side and maybe they are hungry this year. And I am going to read too much into this about grumpkins because apparently so grumpkins, they grant wishes and they steal and replace children. And Ned Stark is kind of a grumpkin, maybe. He's trying to grant his sister's promise, right? Of, and I mean, maybe he fails because of how much it's haunted him. We don't know. We don't know what the promise was, all right? And so he's trying to fulfill that wish. And maybe he's changed John from an egg into a John. But also, John does the same thing later on in his storyline, kind of like his father, quote-unquote father. But also, John kind of does the same thing as Ned, Right, and he's like stealing and replacing children like a grumpkin, as he does when he switches monster and Aemon Steel Song. I love that. I love that idea. It's that same symmetry that we get with the Bale the Bard story, but this is in a horror way, like I said, instead of romantic, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It pulls like that Roos and Ramsey idea where he takes him from his mother, and it also contrasts fake Aegon's story from Varys that yes. he was switched with a pisswater prince. Yes, and it's sad because then you have again like this this kid being placed in danger for the life of another what is it, the life of one bastard boy against the kingdom right as Tyrion and john finally sit down to eat alistair thorne shows up and he's a butthead yeah as he is of course he says the lord commander has a message for john and john's hesitant and worried that it's bad news about benjamin the Lord Commander is not accustomed to waiting, was Sir Alistair's reply, and I am not accustomed to having my commands questioned by bastards. Tyrion Lannister swung off the bench and rose. Stop it, Thorne, you're frightening the boy. Keep out of matters that don't concern you, Lannister, you have no place here. I have a place at court, though, the dwarf said, smiling. A word in the right ear and you'll die a sour old man before you get another boy to train. Now, tell Snow why the old bear needs to see him. Is there news of his uncle? No, Sir Alistair said. This is another matter entirely. A bird arrived this morning from Winterfell with a message that concerns his brother. He corrected himself. His half-brother. Fuck off, Alistair. Yeah, fuck off, Alistair. First of all, this is why you end up having a hard time when you go down to King's Landing, because even though it was actually super important, yeah, maybe because you were have such a good a- attitude, be professional. I don't know. Yeah, he was just such a dick to everyone that no one wants to fucking work with him. Anyway, it, but like this exchange is interesting because it's not just Catelyn, like everyone in Westeros, even at the wall where they're all like, yeah, who you are doesn't matter. You can rise above. It's not true. 
all right because like the upper management are coming from the same fucking class system that donald noy just warned john about which like they continue to reinforce John's bastardy and place to him. Like, Thorne is saying right now, I don't answer the bastards. And then, like, who's the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch? It's fucking J.R. Mormont, okay? Like, the lesson that Donald Noy gave him, like, it couldn't come from those other characters. It couldn't come from Mormont. It couldn't come from Thorne. It couldn't even come from Benjen. Like, Donald Noy is the only one who's able to give John this lesson because he was a smith and he comes from a lower station than any of these people who had land-owning families. And, like, Donald Noy had a good pay, but he also was able to move within these different spaces he had to. And, like, he interacted with different people. He's a smith. He has a trade for a living. And he knows that these boys on the Night's Watch, like, he knows what they're like even before he joined. And just because, like, the Night's Watch, it keeps promoting people like Waymar, as we see, Jair and Alistair, like, that classism is so, so much at play in that prologue. And they think that John, like, is a part of this until it turns out he's not, to the dismay of these folks, like, when he gets elected. Like, he's not reinforcing that class system later on. Right. The Night's Watch is looked at as this last resort for most royals and nobles, right? But for a lot of these boys, it's all they had. Uh, in the North, it's honored to send one of your sons, your second sons, to the Watch. But it's that's it. They, no one else views it as honorable. They view it as like, well, how this is the highest I can rise put into this shitty situation. J.R. Mormont is the highest that you can get on the Night's Watch. That's it. So there's kind of a struggle for power from all these highborn people that previously held power and now they don't. Yeah, and it's, as you were saying earlier about John's privilege, like, if part of the way that you get that power and you rise is, what, how good you are at fighting, how good you are at commanding, etc. These boys aren't trained in that. They don't have the skills necessary to be able to work past unless they work harder than people like Alistair or J.R. Mormont. They weren't they don't have that same foundation to even rise as high as they do. No, they just have to wait for someone to die and hope they can take their place. Yeah, and even if they do, there's someone else there who was trained. Yep, absolutely. That automatically gets the job. It's not fair. Yeah. So back to the letter that they receive about Bran. Tyrion automatically assumes the worst. He gives his condolences to John, who bolts off to learn what this news is about Bran. Yes, he reads... Um, because Lord Mormont is like, I, I know you can read. All right. And so he hears this and John reads that Bran is awoken and Mormont says he's crippled. But John's like, it doesn't fucking matter. He's alive. And that's what matters. And in the background, we have birds that are quirking. First, they're going court. And then they repeat live in regards to like, Bran, he's going to live. Yeah, guess what? It's because it was Blood Raven. It is. I also kind of wonder, is it like also about John also going to live? I don't know. Right. Whatever. Corn King. Whatever. Corn yep. King. Yeah, he's so happy, he runs down the halls, back to the eating hall, where he picks up Tyrion and spins him. He looks weird, everyone's staring at him, including Gren, who now is wearing a bandage. John reflects on learning his lesson and goes up to Gren, and apologizes about his wrist, and offers to teach Gren how to defend from it. I'm sorry about your wrist. Rob used the same move on me once, only with a wooden blade. It hurt like seven hells, but yours must be worse. Look, if you want, I can show you how to defend that. Alistair Thorne overheard him. Lord Snow wants to take my place now, he sneered. I'd have an easier time teaching a wolf to juggle than you will training this aurochs. I'll take that wager, Sir Alistair, 
John said, I'd love to see Ghost Jungle. I love that line so much. It's so good. There's I mean, a, like, there's an artist on Tumblr that does scenes from the books. I have to find them. And they actually have done this as a little drawing of ghost juggling. Oh, my God. And Sir yes. Alistair and John and everyone standing around looking like nonplussed. It's really yes. Good. I mean, like, good job, Sir Alistair. You did it. You taught ghosts how to juggle. Yes. <laughs> That's what he's here to do, right? I, I, it's a, like you said, it's just such a fun line. Like, more sick comebacks from John because that's how you know that John's a protagonist, right? Like, he has sick comebacks. It's like when the superheroes are making hilarious quips while fighting enemies. Yeah. I love it. I do love it. Tyrion is leading the laughter, too. Like, there's no, everyone is laughing. The whole room is laughing. But as Alistair Thorne leaves, he threatens John and he says, That was a grievous error, Lord Snow. Ooh, it's going down. Oh. A mortal nemesis you have made, Lord Snow. <laughs> That's how I read that in my mind. I mean, it is what he did, I guess, but it's just like, oh my god, Alistair. Like, we're all like John grow up, but it's really like Alistair Thorne but grow up. It is. Yeah. Alistair Thorne is a goddamn adult. Jon Snow is 14. Yeah. He is. I mean, and I get it. Like, Alistair, again, Alistair Thorne didn't want to be here, but I'm also just like, like you said, yeah. like, why are you being like this? It's just silly. It's uh, silly, petty shit. And it's like, you're a man of the Night's Watch, not a little schoolgirl. Come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I guess that's it. That's our wrap. That's John 2 and John 3. Holy crap. We've done three John chapters. We, uh, we're really excited to have some guests on in the future. We are going to be inviting yes. some people on to get through the long night of these John chapters. So look forward to that. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who, but I will tease you that he's a very magic man and he'll be coming on for John 8 with us. So get ready for whoever that is. Whomst, yes. Whomstever. And we also have other guests lined up and we are, we are sorting those out and we'll get to them. Yes. When we do. Yes. And, you know. To find out and stay tuned for who those guests are, of course, be sure to follow us on social media. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter. Or maybe, like, you have something fun to say. Shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, we've been really email light lately. Where are our emails? Yeah. Our usuals haven't been emailing us. There's no Pat. There's no Warren. There's no... I'm feeling a little left out, right? Are all of our ravens being shot down? Yeah, who is shooting our Intercepted. ravens down? <laughs> Red. <laughs> Gasp. And if you haven't already, make sure to get your weekly Girls Gone Canon fix. We come out every Friday publicly on Podbean, on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Acast, anywhere you get your podcasts, you can check it out. And of course, we are on Patreon, and all $5 and up patrons get special episodes like the Theon 1 wins, chap- uh, wins chapter, and you know, we are going to put one out this month around game of thrones around the show and of course as we said earlier we do have that stretch goal of a thousand and when we reach that we will do a live stream yeah just a thousand uh thanks again to anyone that supports we love our patrons uh different tiers even if you just want to support with one dollar it is helpful so we really appreciate you guys' support as always, I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me as Lies and Arbor on the internet or at liesandarborgold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana, a.k.a. Glass Table Girl. See you guys next time for John 4 and John 5. <laughs>